Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome back to American Biography, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This is the life of John Marshall, episode 15, XYZ. Last time, we talked a great deal about the partisan strife gripping the United States in the 1790s, and the international difficulties the United States was experiencing trying to maintain its neutrality and avoid being caught up in the turmoil between Great Britain and revolutionary France. As discussed, the Jay Treaty took effect early in 1796 and helped to curb the escalating tensions between Great Britain and the United States. However, the treaty brought precious little relief to the United States, as coming to terms with Britain seemed to provoke the French government who responded by ordering its navy to begin seizing American ships suspected of trading with Britain. In 1796, the American ambassador to France, the Republican partisan and Jefferson acolyte James Monroe, had been recalled out of a concern in Philadelphia that he was too chummy with the French, and questions arose in the cabinet about whose interests he was really serving in his post. Though offered the opportunity, Marshall declined to replace his friend, and Charles Coatsworth Pickney of South Carolina was instead sent to Paris. But in a sign of the increasing tension between France and America, the French government refused to accept Pickney's credentials. When word reached Philadelphia of this affront, they would reach the ears of a new president, John Adams of Massachusetts. Adams' patriot pedigree was unquestionable, from his revolutionary writings as Novanglis in the early 1770s, and as a member of the First and Second Continental Congresses, where he worked tirelessly to move the body towards independence. He also was an experienced diplomat, having spent time in the courts of Versailles, the Netherlands, and the court of St. James during and after the Revolutionary War. When he returned from his foreign postings, he had been elected the first Vice President of the United States. And now, as the nation's second commander-in-chief, there was not an American alive who had more first-hand knowledge of European diplomacy. 
Now, just take what I'm about to say here and put it in your pocket for later, because we're going to come back to it in a little bit. So, in response to the escalating international situation, President Adams, rather reasonably, went before Congress seeking funds to bolster the American Army and Navy, though he was determined to try and resolve the crisis peaceably. Adams initially wanted to send Vice President Thomas Jefferson to France, but the domestic political situation being what it was, even between these old friends and revolutionary comrades, there was a basic lack of trust, and so Jefferson declined to go. So, Adams determined that he was going to send Pickney back to Paris again. After all, he'd already been given a commission once, and he was still cooling his heels in Europe, but Adams wasn't going to send him back alone, and the president decided two additional envoys should be sent to join him, so the French would know he was serious. The first man chosen was Adams' old friend, Elbridge Jerry, the man whom the term gerrymander is named for. Jerry was a Massachusetts Republican, with French sympathies, but despite his politics, Adams knew him and felt he could trust him. For the final envoy, Adams wanted a Virginian, preferably James Madison. However, when his cabinet objected to this, John Marshall's name was instead submitted to the Senate, and he was approved as envoy extraordinary and minister plenipotentiary to the French Republic. Once notified of his appointment, Marshall, naturally, dropped everything he was doing and made ready for the journey. What? Wait a second. John Marshall agreed to go? The guy who not that long ago turned down an appointment as a federal attorney for Virginia because the federal courts met in a different town than the state courts? Why? Why would he, on multiple occasions, refuse to go to Philadelphia at the behest of the great George Washington, whom he knew personally and admired greatly, but would drop everything and go to France when requested by a president from Massachusetts that he'd never met. Marshall writes that he thought the trip would be a short one, and obviously successful, because, of course, both France and the United States would want to settle this dispute as quickly as possible. And he even also admitted that he was excited at the prospect of the notoriety that he could claim for himself by going, saying that this had no small influence over a mind in which ambition, though subjected to control, was not absolutely extinguished. But still, one has to feel that this isn't reason enough, given that at the time that he was making ready to leave, Polly was again pregnant. Contemporaries, lacking a kinder vocabulary, would use terms such as invalid to describe Polly and we've previously discussed her delicate mental and physical condition, as well as her steady decline over time in previous episodes, all of which John would have been intimately acquainted with. However, here he is, apparently comfortable enough with the situation that he was willing to entrust his home and the raising of his 13-year-old son Thomas, 10-year-old son Jacqueline, and 3-year-old daughter Mary to his slaves, his hired help, and ultimately his wife's relatives who lived in Richmond, unto whom he must have known the responsibility for his family would ultimately, by necessity, devolve onto. Polly was inconsolable when she learned of the French mission, and seems to have begged John not to go up to and including the day he set out. Smith describes their parting as bitter, and records that despite the many letters Marshall wrote to her, 
he would only receive a single letter in response during the entirety of the year that he was away. So again I have to ask, what could compel a man that had rarely spent a night away from home since his 1783 marriage to throw his domestic concerns to the wind and sail for Europe? The answer, in short, was the Fairfax Purchase. Remember the compromise we discussed a few episodes back when Denny Martin Fairfax signed over the propriety to James Marshall, who then conveyed the unappropriated lands to Virginia in exchange for the state's recognition of the Fairfax title to the manor lands, which would then clear the way for Denny to sell that property to the Marshalls so they could purchase it once they raised the money? Well, yeah, about that money. At the time of that compromise, the Marshalls had planned on leaning heavily on James Marshall's father-in-law, the preeminent patriot and wealthy Philadelphia financier, Robert Morris. Morris had, to put it delicately, fallen on hard times. He had severely overextended himself, primarily through unwise land speculation, and in the not-too-far future, this signer of the Declaration of Independence and senator from Pennsylvania would be languishing in a debtor's prison. By 1797, it was already clear that Morris couldn't be of any help to the Marshals in this matter. So, therefore, it's reasonable to conclude, considering John's activities upon his arrival in Europe, that a significant motivating factor for his trip was to aid his brother James in raising the funds needed to complete the purchase for those manor lands. Jefferson wrote, with some animosity, that Mr. John Marshall has said here, meaning Philadelphia, that had he not been appointed minister to France, he was desperate in his affairs and must have sold his estate, and that immediately. That that appointment was the greatest godsend that could have ever befallen a man. It seemed when John landed in Amsterdam, rather than seek out Pickney at The Hague, he first spent several days meeting bankers, and shortly thereafter, James was miraculously able to pay Denny Fairfax the balance owed for his lands, and it seems, based on when the transfer of the property was recorded in Virginia, John likely brought the deed to that property home with him when he returned from Europe the following year. But about the mission, the envoy's instructions were to essentially avoid war at all costs, and they were given a wide berth regarding how they would go about achieving such a thing. When Marshall had met Adams and Secretary of State Timothy Pickering, he'd been told that the 1778 French-American Treaty of Alliance should be renegotiated to relieve the United States of any obligations to guarantee French possessions in the Caribbean. He'd been told the envoys should try to recover damages for cargoes lost to French privateers. And if France could be made to accept the Jay Treaty, all the better. But of overriding importance, it was essential that American neutrality be recognized by France and for French outrages on American maritime commerce to end. Marshall set sail from Philadelphia on July 18, 1797, and arrived in the Netherlands August 29th. Upon his arrival, he learned that Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord had just been made French foreign minister, which he took as a good sign, 
as Talleyrand had spent considerable time in the United States during the Terror, and had become fast friends with Alexander Hamilton while in New York. It turned out that Marshall was being over-optimistic. Smith writes a rather fine comparison of these two adversaries that I'd like to take a moment to share. Like Marshall, Talleyrand thrived on social companionship and cultivated a relaxed style that the uninitiated often mistook for lassitude. Indeed, the two men had much in common. Both could be breathtakingly charming. Talleyrand was the epitome of Parisian grace, while Marshall personified the open friendliness of the American frontier. Talleyrand valued civility and reflection, understood the importance of diplomacy and negotiation, and when pressed with the choice of a circuitous or a direct route to his objective, invariably chose the former. Marshall appeared more direct, but that directness often concealed a subtlety that Talleyrand reluctantly came to admire. Both men valued political stability, but both were also gamblers by nature, willing to risk success or failure on the tenacious defense of a carefully calculated position. Little could Marshall and the other American emissaries have known that they were walking into a diplomatic game partially created by their own vice president, who was engaged in his own partisan back-channel intrigue in order to subvert the Adams administration's policies. Jefferson appears to have had a cozy relationship to the French consul in Philadelphia, Joseph Letton, and according to the letter Letton sent to Paris ahead of Marshall, Vice President Jefferson advised, Listen to them, and drag out the negotiations at length, and mollify them by the urbanity of the proceedings. While John Marshall and Charles Pickney awaited the arrival of Elbridge Gerry at The Hague, they learned that the coup of 18 Fructidor had taken place in Paris, whereby the five-man directory, which governed France, was pruned into a three-man directory, and recent election results that smaller directory deemed unfavorable was nullified. The volatility of French politics could not have set the American negotiators at ease. Still, when Jerry had not materialized by September 18th, Marshall and Pickney began their journey to Paris. When Jerry joined the other delegates on October 4th, he found them in a townhouse three blocks away from the French foreign ministry, which Mrs. Pickney described as not very fresh. Four days later, on October 8th, they formally called on Talleyrand, who received them cordially. He provided them diplomatic credentials and informed the Americans that he was preparing a memo for the directory regarding the issues between the two republics, and he would follow up with them soon. The mission appeared to be off to a fine start, so they were confused when they didn't hear anything again from Talleyrand until October 14th, when Pickney found out from the American vice consul in Paris, who had heard from Talleyrand's private secretary, that the directory was exasperated with the United States, and, over Talleyrand's objection, was demanding an explanation for a passage in the speech President Adams had given to Congress the previous May, which I referenced earlier and told you to keep in the back of your mind, and without such an explanation, negotiations simply could not commence. When Pickney brought this to his companions, they decided not to respond because of the irregularity by which this information had been transmitted. 
Now I want to pause for just a second and warn you to buckle up, because things are about to get extremely stupid. So what had John Adams said, anyway? The French later would point to the following part of Adams' speech. While we are endeavoring to adjust all our differences with France by amicable negotiations, the progress of the war in Europe, the depredations of our commerce, the personal injuries to our citizens, and the general complexion of our affairs, render it my indispensable duty to recommend to your consideration effectual measures of defense. Wait, really? That's it? The demand for an explanation of Adam's speech really appears to be a red herring that Talleyrand was just using as a distraction in order to forward his own designs. The first mention of an explanation of the speech is at his own instigation in that very memo that he was preparing for the directory when he met with the American delegates. Yet when he relayed this news to the Americans later, it was presented to them as if the demand had originated in the directory and was being pushed by them over his objection. What he was doing was making himself appear an indispensable ally to the Americans, but was in reality the one keeping the Americans in abeyance, where they felt obliged to him for any assistance that he could render them. It's almost as if he was softening the delegation up for something. Hmm. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Then, on October 18th, an Englishman representing a Dutch bank appeared at the delegates' home to assure the Americans that their checks would be honored while they were in Paris. But before he left, he asked Pickney if it would be okay if a Swiss banker named Jean Hottinger, who bore a message from Talleyrand, came by that evening. In this episode, Hottinger shall henceforth be known as X. 
X arrived that evening at dinner time. Pickney took him aside, and X reiterated what they'd been told previously about needing to explain Adams's remarks and how Talleyrand still had their backs. However, it would now also be necessary for the United States to agree to pay all claims of loss by Americans suffered at the hands of French privateers, and that the United States would also have to provide a loan to the French government. But wait, there's more. On top of all that, Talleyrand would also require 50,000 pounds with which he could use to grease the right palms and smooth things over for the Americans. When Pickney shared this conversation with the others, Jerry didn't have much to say at first, but Marshall was angry. He advocated ignoring this irregular communication, as they had ignored the previous one, and said they should write to Talleyrand and push for face-to-face meetings. Jerry and Pickney overruled him, and X was invited back the next evening to speak with all three Americans. X came bearing the French demand in writing. While the instrument didn't name Talleyrand specifically, it euphemistically referred to him as a person who possesses the confidence of the directory, and included several helpful suggestions as to how the United States could violate the Jay Treaty and its policy of neutrality and still give France the loan it required on the sly. For instance, they could disguise the loan as debt repayment, but the Americans would have to be sure they added a little more because, as the note politely phrased it, there shall also be first taken from this loan certain sums for the purpose of making the customary distributions in diplomatic affairs. Essentially, first the bribe would be taken out, and then the balance would be transferred to the directory. The Americans debated how best to respond late into the evening, and cracks in their unity were beginning to show. Marshall, for his part, was convinced that France would not go to war with the United States while they were at war with Britain and Austria, and that they should stop speaking with intermediates sent by the foreign minister, period. Jerry, on the other hand, was convinced that if they took a hard line and didn't get to the negotiating table, war would surely follow. Pickney was in between, but leaned towards Marshall's opinion generally and did so increasingly as things dragged on. The next day, October 20th, while the Americans were still considering what to do, X dropped by along with Pierre Bellamy, Talleyrand's personal banker, who from here on out will be called Y. Y proceeded to tell Marshall and company about how much Talleyrand really wanted to help the Americans, because he wanted to repay all the kindness the United States had shown him while he'd lived there. The thing is, though, because the Directory hadn't officially received the envoys, Talleyrand couldn't engage with them in direct talks. Luckily, right there in Wise pocket was a list of proposals that could form the basis of a treaty between the respective republics. They would have to, of course, disavow President Adams' offensive remarks, and after that, Y stated bluntly, I will not disguise from you that this satisfaction being made, the essential part of the treaty remains to be adjusted. It will require money. It will require a great deal of money. 
At this point, Marshall sought clarification and asked if they don't agree to those terms, would they not be officially received? Neither X nor Y had an answer for this, and they left. The next morning, at breakfast, X and Y returned and confirmed that according to Talleyrand, the directory indeed found renouncing Adams's speech an indispensable preliminary to obtain a reception. That is, unless they could find means to change their determination in this particular. And it just gets more ridiculous from here. The envoys asked what that meant, and Y said he couldn't officially respond, but in his own personal opinion, the United States should advance to the French government, let's say 32 million Dutch florins, and hey, when France signed a peace treaty with Holland, the Dutch could be required to repay that loan. So really, the U.S. would just be advancing France alone on Holland's tab. In response to that awfully specific recommendation, Marshall thought to ask if Talleyrand's 50,000 pounds would come out of that sum or would be included separately, to which Y said, no, that would be separate. The envoys excused themselves to discuss the response. The sources don't say, but I presume, at this point, X and Y flipped the sofa cushions and looked for loose change in the envoy's absence. Once cloistered, Jerry began temporizing and suggested they beg for additional time to consider what to do. Marshall records in his journal, I improperly interrupted him and declared that I would not consent to any proposition of the sort, that the subject had already been considered, and that, so far as my voice would go, I would not permit it to be supposed longer that we could deliberate on such propositions. They eventually agreed that Marshall would set sail for Philadelphia to obtain new instructions if the French government agreed to suspend maritime attacks on American shipping until he returned. They wrote a memo summarizing the proposal and read it to X and Y, who seemingly were not prepared for the possibility that the Americans would not accept the scheme they'd proposed. Y, in particular, lost his temper and said they'd be expelled from France and made allusions to their personal safety. The two agents then stormed out muttering threats. Over the next several days, the Americans packed up their belongings and turned their attention towards making travel arrangements, expecting at any moment they'd receive orders to leave Paris. For his part, Talleyrand didn't seem sure what to do with these troublesome Americans. He had assumed that they would just play ball as so many European polities were lining up to do. He chose to interject a fresh face into the game, Lucien Hauteval, or as I like to call him, Z. Z had lived in Boston for a time and had been friendly with Jerry, and was instructed to approach the Massachusetts Republican alone if possible. On October 22nd, Z called on the home of the envoys to, conveniently, find Jerry all by himself. He gave assurances that he was only stopping by to see his old friend Jerry, and in a friendly manner explained that the loan and the douceur, or bribe, was just the price of doing business in France, and that they weren't going to get anywhere unless they paid to play. To his credit, Jerry insisted that Z come back the next day and meet with the entire American delegation, which he did. At the meeting on the 23rd, Z suggested that they all go pay a social call on Talleyrand in his office. 
Marshall and Pickney refused, saying that they would need to be officially invited. But Jerry broke ranks and agreed to go with Z. Z and Jerry made an appointment to meet with Talleyrand on the 28th. And would you believe it, on the 27th, an excited ex showed up at the envoy's home to inform them that Austria had surrendered to France, and sternly warned them that France was feeling its oats, and, being flush with victory, was unlikely to take much more guff from these Americans. They might want to soften their stance and get in line, lest war result. X had clearly come to rattle the saber and scare the Americans. Marshall vividly recounted the scene in his journal. Mr. Hodiger again expatiated on the power and violence of France. He urged the danger of our situation and pressed the policy of softening the directory. Mr. Hodiger again returned to the subject of money. Said he, Gentlemen, you do not speak to the point. It is money. It is expected you will offer money. General Pickney said we had spoken to that point very explicitly, and had given an answer. No, Hodiger said, you have not. What is your answer? General Pickney replied, No, no, not a sixpence. Hottinger asked if our government did not know that nothing was to be obtained here without money. General Pickney replied that our government had not even suspected such a state of things. Hodiger appeared surprised at this, and said that there was not an American in Paris who could not have given this information. The conversation continued for nearly two hours, and the public and private advance of money was pressed, and pressed again, in a variety of forms. On the 28th, when Jerry and Z met with Talleyrand, the conversation again focused on money, and Jerry was told that if they didn't come up with it in a week, the directory would pass a decree requiring a disavowal of Adams's speech. When Jerry protested that they didn't have the authority to agree to the loan, Talleyrand reminded him that they were ministers plenipotentiary, and they should go ahead and just assume that power. On the 29th, X popped up again with a new message for the Americans. If they paid Talleyrand his bribe, one of them could return to America to get new instructions regarding the loan. Those that remained could not meet with the directory, but could have informal meetings with Talleyrand instead. When the Americans asked if in the interim the French would either return confiscated goods or cease attacking American shipping, the answer was no. So the Americans said if that was the case, then their answer was also no. X said if that were the case, then the Americans would be ordered to leave. The next day, X and Y showed up again with another new proposal, because, holy crap, did Talleyrand want his bribe. The October 30th proposal dropped demands relating to Adam's speech altogether, said a joint commission could be formed to adjudicate the claims of victims of French privateers, with awards initially to be paid by the United States, but now with the promise that France would repay them in the future. One of the Americans could return to the United States to get instructions about a loan, and while he was gone, attacks on American shipping would cease, and Talleyrand and the remaining Americans would begin working on a treaty. So, when that third envoy returned from America with the loan, and to be clear, he better return with the loan, the treaty would be nearly done. But before Talleyrand would put this plan up to the directory, he would just need that 50,000 pounds or at least most of it. 
On October 31st, the Americans gave their formal response. Nope. Sorry. Not gonna happen. No diplomatic ratification can precede the ratification of the treaty. Talleyrand initially made no reply. Then on November 3rd, X reappeared at the envoy's door, again pushing that they accept the October 30th proposal, and threatening them by saying that if they refused, Talleyrand would send a memo to the French party in the United States, meaning the Republicans, blaming the envoy's hostile attitude for the breakdown of the negotiations and placing blame for the failure on the Federalist Party in general. After this fit of temper, things quieted down considerably for most of November, with Talleyrand only making one overture to the envoys through a new agent, whose name isn't important because his approach was rebuffed, and with both sides settling into a sort of staring contest. With nothing particularly diplomatic to do, the envoys began sampling the flavors of Paris and looking for less expensive quarters. And through some connections, they were able to upgrade to better accommodations. In fact, they were able to move into a lavish mansion for considerably less per month than they were paying for their current rundown rental. The home belonged to the Marquise de Villette a beautiful young widow and mother of two, who had been adopted by and a caretaker for the great Voltaire in his final years. She was a shining star of the Parisian salon scene, and could regularly be seen with either Jerry or Marshall on her arm. In a boneheaded and unsigned letter written to his wife, Marshall mooned over Madame de Villette, writing, I have changed my lodgings much for the better, I lived, till within a few days, in a house where I kept my own apartments, perfectly in the style of a miserable old bachelor, without any mixture of female society. I now have rooms in the house of a very accomplished, a very sensible, and I believe a very amicable lady whose temper, very contrary to the general character of her countrywomen, is domestic, and who generally sits with us two or three hours in the afternoon. This renders my situation less unpleasant than it had been. Whoa, John. Hand, palm, face. What are you thinking, sending that letter to your frail, pregnant, stressed-out wife? By the time she received that letter, Polly had just given birth to their son John, and as soon as she read it, we're told she went into a deep depression, largely stopped eating, and lost interest entirely in her newborn, who had to be taken to her sister Eliza's home and cared for. Nice work, John. Polly clearly thought that he was having an affair with Madame de Villette, and historians have wondered this as well. In his recent biography of Marshall, Harlan Unger rightly says, The possibility of an affair cannot definitively be ruled out or confirmed but then goes on to say he thinks it definitely happened and was even willing to give it an additional scandalous twist. He writes, Marshall heard the seductive French whisper one evening, Why will you not lend us money? Madame de Villette had surprised Marshall in the quiet of her dimly lit salon. Stunned by the lady's words at first, Marshall called for Pickney. Both suddenly realized their hostess was also a Talleyrand agent. The French foreign minister had duped them into renting lodgings subsidized by the French government to lure them into the arms of a seductress. Pickney told his hostess he planned to return to America immediately. Madame de Villette hissed 
that if he ended his mission, France had a powerful political party in America ready to seize power from the Adams administration by force if necessary. And I have to admit, this story has it all. Treachery, intrigue, sex, corruption, and it is, of course, almost certainly untrue. In his Marshall biography, Gene Smith deals with this rumor-mongering fairly conclusively, writing, Some historians have suggested that Madame de Villette was a femme fatale, an agent of Talleyrand, who seduced the Americans with her charm. There is no evidence to support this claim. The French police had an informer who watched Madame de Villette's house and who tried to keep an eye on Marshall and Jerry, albeit without much success. The police dossier on Madame de Villette contains a report from this informer indicating that the envoys met nightly at her house. When the police commissioner passed that information on to Talleyrand, the foreign minister immediately expressed gratitude. If Madame de Villette had been working for Talleyrand, it would not have been necessary to dispatch police informers to spy on the envoys. Moreover, the French archives, which are known for the completeness of their holdings, have no record of any communication between Talleyrand and the Marquise. So Smith finally concludes, The entire matter was considered at length by William Sinchcombe in his definitive work on the XYZ affair, and he concludes that the woman in question was Madame de la Forest, not Madame de Villette. That, too, was the judgment of the editors of the Marshall Papers. So where are we now? For two whole months, the American envoys had been in Paris and had still not been officially received. In early December, Talleyrand moved to drive a wedge between Jerry and his Federalist companions. Marshall and Pickney worried for Jerry's resolve, and rightfully so. It wasn't that he would be wooed or corrupted by Talleyrand, but rather that Jerry saw real danger in Talleyrand's threats of war, where Marshall only saw bluff and Jerry was determined to prevent the doom he perceived to be at hand, whatever the cost of preserving the peace. In mid-January, to try and maintain unanimity, the Americans decided to draft a document ostensibly for Talleyrand, but really for posterity, outlining their mission's objectives and the issues between the two republics that they'd come to try to resolve, and requesting negotiation either begin or that they be given their passports so they might depart France. All three men affixed their signatures. Talleyrand's response to this was to have new intermediates approach the Americans individually, but like a shark sensing blood in the water, he himself would begin to work on Jerry. Throughout February, Jerry and Talleyrand frequently met alone, as described by Pickney in this letter to his brother. Every art is used by Talleyrand and the French Americans here to divide the envoys, and if possible, to detach Mr. Jerry from his colleagues. Confidential communications and proposals are made to him by Talleyrand, under conjunction to conceal them from us, and he considers himself as pledged to comply with this request. I, however, still think he will act properly. In every public measure we have yet adopted, we have been unanimous. But he is habitually suspicious, and hesitates so much that it is very unpleasant to do business with him. While mostly secretive about his discussions with the foreign minister, Jerry periodically brought up to his colleagues Talleyrand's Ducer, which wore on Marshall's nerves. 
on February 9th, he told Marshall and Pickney that the Directory had given the Americans 24 hours to get out of France, but Talleyrand had delayed the order to give them time to get the money. Marshall refused, pointing to the many previous times this same threat had been made, and recorded in his journal. Mr. Jerry was a little warm and the conversation was rather unpleasant. On February 14th, Jerry warned that without the requested loan, no treaty was possible. Marshall and Pickney were unmoved. On February 25th, Jerry shared a plan suggested by an associate of Talleyrand's. If the United States agreed to the loan, but delayed the payment until France and Britain ceased fighting, then American neutrality wouldn't outwardly be compromised. In response, Pickney pointed out that the French could use the loan commitment itself as collateral for raising money now, which would not make it a neutral act and Marshall reiterated that they should agree to nothing which did not come through official channels. Jerry insisted that if they did not bend on the subject of the loan, it would mean certain war, which would endanger American independence as it would drive the United States into the arms of England. Marshall retorted that if they granted a loan under duress, American independence was also damaged as it would make them essentially a client nation to France. At length, they decided to seek another meeting with Talleyrand. This occurred on March 2nd, only the second such meeting in five months. Talleyrand complained again about the Adams speech, and weirdly complained about George Washington's farewell address, too. He reiterated that the loan was an absolute precondition. When questioned on deferring payment until peace with Britain was made, Talleyrand said, possibly, but the Americans would still need to provide some immediate aid. The Americans were divided and reached no decision that evening. The next morning, when Jerry began going on again about the loan, Marshall snapped. My judgment was not more perfectly convinced that the floor was wood, or that I stood on my feet and not on my head, than that our instructions would not permit us to make the loan required. As March dragged on, Marshall and Jerry had an inconclusive meeting with Talleyrand, and hope for reaching any sort of deal was effectively drying up. Both sides now worked to put the other in the wrong. This most pointedly expressed itself in the strange dance which ensued, wherein Talleyrand wanted the Americans to request their passports and leave, while the Americans wanted to be issued their passports and ordered to go. Despite the occasional appearance of French agents dropping hints that the Directory, or maybe just Talleyrand, wanted Pickney and Marshall gone, Jerry swore up and down that he would not stay in Paris alone and negotiate, saying he'd rather be thrown in the Seine. Pickney made it known that if such a thing came to pass, that could be arranged. What happens next is perhaps obvious. On March 23rd, Jerry said Marshall and Pickney should request their passports and leave, while he would remain behind to keep the lines of communication open. Jerry was terrified that if they didn't comply, all three would be ordered to leave and America's ruin would follow. Marshall refused, saying that if Talleyrand wanted him gone, he'd have to say so. When Talleyrand learned of Marshall's position, he was furious, and after an intense back and forth through intermediates, Finally, mercifully, on April 13th, Talleyrand broke down and wrote to Marshall and Pickney, requesting that they leave France and enclose their passports and letters of safe conduct. 
Poor Jerry would remain in Paris for another four months, stuck in a terrible middle ground, whereon he was unwilling to undertake diplomacy on his own without new instructions, but also afraid to leave, and so in the end was a hostage to his own fear. Marshall set sail for New York on April 23rd, appropriately enough aboard the Alexander Hamilton. And as he wrote rather reflectively to Pickney, who had stayed behind while his daughter recovered from an illness, I shall bid an eternal adieu to Europe and to its crimes. Mark, I mean only political crimes, for those of a private nature are really some of them so lovely that it requires men of as much virtue and less good temper than you and myself to hate them. Okay, that's where we're going to end today. I have a little housekeeping to take care of before I'm through, though. First and foremost is to tell you to be sure to check out friend of the show, Stephen Guerra's History of the Papacy podcast, which is the Agora podcast of the month for January. You will remember Steve from our crossover episode about Pope Francis's visit to the United States in the fall of 2015. If you check out the Agora Podcast Network feed, you'll find an interview I did with Steve about podcasting and how he approaches his topics in an episode of a show that I semi-regularly produce for Agora called The Exchange. And while you're there, if you haven't already listened to it, you'll find a great big podcast I did with several other amazing podcasters called Fifty Shades of Great, Washington v. Bonaparte. It's pretty epic and well worth the listen. And finally, I do apologize that this episode took so long to release. In addition to other projects, the holidays, some travel, and of course work, nothing is so directly responsible as how absolutely engrossed I became with the graft and corruption of the French and the duplicitous subversion of the Jeffersonians back in the United States. This episode was long enough, but I'm not quite ready to move on from this topic altogether. Next time which will coincide with American Biography's first birthday, I will be joined by the great Zach Twomley of When Diplomacy Fails, and will examine what forces were working behind the scenes, setting its will against the American envoys, and which sought to sink the Adams administration's foreign policy. It should be great fun, so be sure to follow American Biography on Facebook and at American underscore bio on Twitter or at www.americanbiography.webs.com for the latest updates. Thanks for listening. Hope to talk to you soon.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.